0: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 43 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 24th of November. And Leon, this week we're talking with Mike Sakalis, who's the Regional Vice President for Australia and New Zealand for Pure Storage. Very interesting company.
1: That's right. And he uh, talked to us about how he digitised Collingwood Football Club.
0: Yeah, so sport is into data management. That's right. Um, and after that, we've got a chat with RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson.
1: Well, yes, he's going to be talking to us about a very topical issue, particularly with Malcolm Turnbull announcing tax cuts. And we're going to be talking to him all about the states taking tax Powers, which would be very interesting and not new. They
0: did originally exercise tax powers, didn't they?
1: That was until they uh, changed the system to allow Australia to fight the Second World War, and hasn't cha- and they haven't looked back. No, indeed.
0: Yeah. Okay, let's listen to Mike Sicalis and Collingwood's uh, data system. Mike Sicalis, you're doing a deal with the Collingwood Football Club that sounds unusual. Tell us about how it works.
2: Well. We've been engaged with Collingwood for over a year and a half, and it started off originally as a sponsorship opportunity with us, um, Collingwood being one of the most recognizable brands in all of Australia um, within sports and within um, leading athletic expertise and and the things that they're trying to get done. It made a lot of sense for us from a uh, data platform company to look at a sponsorship with Collingwood Um, just for the pure fact that um, they're always pushing the envelope, trying to get better. And for us um, as a fast moving company, um, we thought it was a great opportunity to do some sponsorship with Collingwood. And so originally it started off as just, um, yeah, more of a a marketing than a technology thing with two sort of what I'd say like-minded companies. Companies coming together um, yeah, and um, and doing some marketing, then eventuated into a technology play. So as the two companies um, spent time together um, and they learned more about what we did in, uh, in the area and the fields that we're in, uh, we started taking it to more of a, uh, a data center play and really looking at how we can help them not only on the field, but make uh, player personnel and performance decisions.
1: So how does it actually
2: work? Which component? The the sponsorship? We're actually getting the technology and injecting the technology into the team.
1: Get Injecting the technology into the team?
2: Well, much like every sporting club or, or team or, or really um, any type of code around the world, sporting code, um, Collingwood's looking at trying to make real-time decisions with lots and lots of information. And I think if you look at any sport that's going around right now, there is a real push to looking at the data and analyzing that data information that leads to coaches making real-time decisions on the field. And um, one of the things that teams do have right now is an influx of information coming in. Um, The data that's pouring in from practices to fitness to performance and game time, um, it used to be years ago where coaches would make gut decisions based on what they feel will happen versus actually analyzing the information and really looking at the data and letting data guide those decisions and so, for us. Um, as we started to d- deploy a enterprise platform for them to house and mine that data, it really put it into a perspective of where they can use that player information for fitness and training all across the week to develop strategies and plans and hopefully make better decisions on game day just with the overall amount of data that they've gathered it also goes into recruiting it goes into all type of analytics so it's really that analytics side that they're pushing
0: so this would include what videos of players movement um fitness tests, this sort of thing
2: Yes, and even more. So it's all of the above. Um, you know, if you look at the recruiting aspect, getting out to see kids um, in Queensland, in the Northern Territory, in South Australia, um, you know, it takes teams of people. So when you can analyze that data on on video, whether it's coming in from YouTube or your own cameras, you know, it really gives you a good competitive advantage to start to really stack in information, analyze it, make recruiting decisions, make decisions around draft picks, and then. If you look at the players you have in-house and you analyze the fitness, a player may come to a coach and say, hey, I feel 100%. But the fitness in general that they can analyze from video and data may tell them otherwise. So, you know, it sort of takes away the mentality of listening to a player and and hearing what he has to say versus really analyzing the information and saying player may say I want to play and I feel good but the information tells me you're you're playing at 80% right now.
1: But that would also mean wouldn't it that the you would be analyzing the action on game day as well and you'd be taking the data from what's happening on the field and crunching that as well.
2: No doubt. I mean, you know, these guys live and breathe on, you know, really quick decision making and that decision making has to be accurate and so the data that's going on at game time i mean you can really track a player that is falling off from a fitness from a running from a jumping very quickly during a game so they may you know they're going to start the game at what you'd like to hope is 100 percent. but if they're falling down to 70 percent 60 percent in the third quarter. Well, then you have opportunity to make decisions around things like substitution patterns and um, just overall strategy. So whether you move a person up forward or move them back or take them out of the midfield, things like that based on fitness. So the data can really help drive decisions. Now, The AFL have a number of guidelines and structures and and the access to data and game time, but um, leading up to that game time, between quarters, things like that, you can really drive, instead of gut decisions, analytics based on data decisions.
1: That would also require to have uh, data analysis skills too, and we're talking about a football club here.
2: (laughs) Oh, you'd be surprised. Um, The clubs are driven by data. They're not driven by just gut feel or what 20 years of history's told them. I mean, whether it's in the weight room or on the pool, in the pool or on the track, I mean, that data is being analyzed more now than it's ever been. And it's not just the AFL, it's every sport, you know, whether it's uh, the F1 or it's baseball in the U.S. or it's rugby league here. That analyzation of the data, I mean, there's so much data. The question is, how do you make it? work for you and and then how do you how do you actually get wins or as a company make more money out of it so cullingwood spend a lot of time analyzing that data and it's going to become more and more leveraged over time for sure
0: a lot of the action on the field depends on player or the the team working out what's going to be next rather than what's happening now Uh, your system would help them with that would help the coach with that
2: well i think I think in general what what you'll find is that the historical um tendencies of a player or a team absolutely plays into, as we would know, a strategy going into that um, game or the adjustments they make. So if you know for a fact a player likes to have a ball kicked somewhere in the pocket starting the uh, the third quarter, the fourth quarter, or they've got a better percentage from an area on the field where they kick to, that historical data, you want that player that's defending the individual to know that. So the historical Information that's coming from previous games, previous practices, things like that will absolutely deliver where the strategy goes. So if you see a player that's starting to drop and can't cover the same amount of field yet, you know, another player is going to run extremely hard the entire game. That analytics that happens prior to that game, the ten games, the fifteen games, the three games before, is massive in understanding how you want to set up your second half or fourth quarter strategy. So everybody goes back to tendencies, Um, you know, players' informations, don't lie. All of those types of things, you know, the facts are the facts, the data is the data, and at the end of the day, the coaches want to lean on that data to make hopefully good percentages decisions and. Yes, historical uh, may not be important on how accurate a kick is made at an individual point in on, but it sure tells you where maybe the player wants to catch it or where the pe- player likes to mark a ball.
0: Bearing in mind that the AFL, and indeed almost every major sport, has got a lot of money, um, this is likely to be a very big industry, what you're doing now. Are you looking to expand to... Other sports, other teams?
2: Well, absolutely. So pure storage um, plays heavily in the analytics, the data, um, all of the type of outcome-based, I I guess, information decisions that you're making. So whether it's baseball, whether it's the F1, whether it's the NRL, whether it's um, soccer, all of those types of things, the data that is coming in right now from sporting teams is massive. The pressure on the coaches, the pressure on the players to perform is becoming more and more so. So, you know, one of the things that uh, one of the big teams that we we work with, Mercedes Petrona's team, for example, they've got 300, 400 sensors on every car grabbing data off that car as it comes around the pits. And they're making real time in lap decisions around how that car um, handles in a turn in in a specific weather. And they're looking to carve off milliseconds, if not a second or two. And that can be the difference in them winning. A race and/or getting through a pit stop faster. So, if you look at the heavy investment Mercedes have made in pure storage, it's all around that data analytics and around that car and replicating and doing things in real time. So, or if it's baseball for us, if you look at the San Francisco Giants, for example, in California, you can analyze a pitcher's arm rotation. Maybe there's a loss in velocity, and you can go back and historically and look at the last 300 balls a pitcher has thrown. To say that arm angle isn't exactly where it's normally at, and there's reasons for that. You can make adjustments in-game, in-inning, to be able to help that picture out or get a better outcome. When you think about what this opportunity has for us, I mean, every team has an opportunity. Every team has an opportunity to, to win with us.
0: Mike Carlos thank you very much for an interesting chat.
2: Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for everything, guys. Um, and as always, as a, as, a, as a loyal Collingwood supporter, we hope we get uh, more wins on the board and help propel them into the finals next year.
0: Thank you very much, Mike. Well, as Mike says, in the business of sport, speed is everything. And as we all know, sport is big business these
1: Absolutely. Days. And it's very important for football clubs, in fact, all sporting organisations, to be right across their digital offerings. That's true. Now, Sinclair-Davidson. Sinclair-Davidson, uh, the uh, treasurer, Scott Morrison, has urged CEOs to get behind the government's uh, program for tax cuts. But there are some MPs who want uh, the tax cuts uh, for companies put on hold and the, company, and the government instead to focus on tax cuts for income owners. What's your view?
3: I think this is a very fascinating debate that we need to very carefully unravel because there's probably merits on both sides of the argument, um, to cut company taxes and also to to cut personal income taxes. We haven't had a personal income tax cut in Australia for close on 10 years. Um, the last round of personal income tax cuts were announced during the 2007 general election, if, if you recall correctly, where um, on the first day of the campaign, Howard and Costello uh, announced tax cuts and uh, Kevin Rudd very quickly matched them but the tax cuts in the third year of that particular round were aspirational. And of course, by the time the third year rolled around, uh, the GFC had hit, government revenue was was not doing as well as expected. And so those aspirational tax cuts were never actually delivered. So that's the last time we've had personal income tax in Australia. The arguments for company tax cuts are actually quite strong. Australia has a very high company tax rate at 30% for big businesses. And even though it's uh, 1.5% lower for small businesses, small businesses don't actually contribute very much to the tax take. Um, They're very highly skewed towards big businesses paying most of the income tax. We're also in an environment where uh, company taxes are going to become far more competitive. The American government, is, or certainly the American president, is talking about uh, company tax cuts there. So we would anticipate that uh, money would probably flow away from Australia towards, uh, say, the United States if those tax cuts came through. And investment in Australia would, would we would we would probably collapse even further than where it, where it currently is. So the argument for company tax cuts are pretty strong. At the same time, though, if you want a big bang for buck, personal income tax cuts are certainly what we should be thinking about, especially given that uh, real incomes don't seem to be doing that particularly well. People are becoming very agitated, complaining bitterly about rising um, energy prices, uh, feeling that their cost of living is falling, and that would be the kind of thing that would certainly relieve some anger and stress out in the uh, in the electorate.
1: But it would appear that if giving personal income tax cuts would be more of a political winner given that the latest wage price index shows that wages are rising by 0.5% and that was with uh, the minimum tax increase, the the minimum wage increase and uh, so you know that that was, they're rising by record low levels and people are very unsettled about low wage growth and low household income.
3: Yes, yes they are, and and the easiest way to put some money back into the system is to actually have a personal income tax cut. And you can structure it in different ways. So for example, you might actually move some of the brackets at the middle levels. So you're actually delivering quite a big hit to middle income earners. Because bearing in mind, when you have a progressive income tax system like we do, and our personal income tax system is very progressive, when you have a progressive income tax system, any tax cuts disproportionately impact upon high income earners rather than low income earners. So if you're taking money if you're taking more money away from low income earners when you so high income earners when you have a tax cut, you end up leaving them with, with, with proportionately more money as well. Now, that's how the system is designed. But you can mess around with the tax rates and the threshold levels within the system, bearing in mind that uh, what used to be the 30% tax rate is now, I think, 34%. Um, you could actually put that back to 30% and, of course, lift the threshold rate. Uh, that's the sort of thing I would be thinking about if you actually wanted to deliver um, revenue back to middle-income earners faster than what's going to happen if if we had, had economic growth, for example. Um, we might also then see people spending more of their own money in ways they want to spend money on. Um, um the thing, I mean, the, the, the other thing to, to, to talk about and to think about is the impact this is going to have on the budget. Remember, the Australian government def- budget is currently in deficit, and I, I'm very pessimistic about them bringing it back into surplus. So you may actually argue that somehow economically responsible. The thing to bear in mind, though, is that spending at the federal government level – hasn't really fallen much since the GFC. So, we actually have, if if, if you think that we ramped up spending during the GFC, we have kept that spending at very, very high levels. Um, And I've long argued, of course, that we we need to cut spending in order to bring the budget back into uh, surplus. Um, Revenue levels are also at very high levels. Um, There was a decline in revenue during the GFC period. That has more or less recovered to to almost pre-GFC levels. So the government is taxing at a very high rate compared to historically and yet is spending at an even higher rate. Um, That distorts the economy. So it's unsurprising that we are not seeing um, uh, uh, wage growth increases like people are used to in the past, that there seems to be economic dislocation. Um, There is economic dislocation, excessive government spending. So returning money to taxpayers and letting them spend their own money in ways that they think are better is probably a good thing.
1: But what impact would tax cuts have then on the budget deficit?
3: In the short run, it would certainly make it bigger, or um, almost certainly increase the size of the deficit in the short run. Um, and to be quite honest, that is probably a price well worth paying um, because this is actually a good decision that's increasing the size of the budget deficit as opposed to the string of very bad decisions that we've had over the last 10 years that have increased the size of the budget deficit. So if we're going to have a budget deficit, let's at least have a good budget deficit for good reasons, uh, for good economic rationale, and not necessarily the wasteful spending that we've been seeing all along.
1: Tax cut. Would actually, in your view, sort of lead to, in the corporate sector, would lead to more jobs, which would create more income, which would create more tax,
3: a bigger tax base? Over time, yes, yes, yes. It it is almost certainly true that tax cuts would lead to more jobs and higher incomes, but this is a slow process. Um, There have been some people in Australia who've been sort of poo-pooing this idea by saying it would happen overnight. It's not going to happen overnight. That would certainly be a very slow process, but it would be a process nonetheless. And this was well documented in the 2010 budget papers when Mr. Swan was the the, the treasurer. Um, In in, in the 2010 budget papers, they actually have a a, a figure, a, a specific forecast from treasurer which, uh, when since, since it lost government, the Labour Party have sort of been backpedalling from this idea of, of, of uh, corporate tax cuts. But they very strongly promoted the idea um, in 2010. So this is actually their policy they are now arguing against uh, from our position.
1: So, I mean, can it be done simultaneously? business tax cut taxes for business and tax cuts for income
3: earners? Uh, yes, 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 yes. There, there's no reason why it shouldn't be done. And, I mean, as, as, as a personal taxpayer, I mean, I, I would love to see my tax burden coming down too. But I, I would certainly try and stick with the plan of pushing company tax cuts. Um, I actually think that given that we are we, we already operate in a region that's got much lower company tax rates than we have, and now with the Americans talking quite seriously about reducing their company tax burden Australia does need to give thought to its its own very high uncompetitive company tax rates bearing in mind of course the other problem that we have is Australia is unusually reliant on corporate tax revenue a lot of other countries don't have very high company tax rates and they don't raise very much uh, money from it we actually do raise quite a bit of money from it through the dividend imputation system that we have so australia is unusually reliant on company tax revenue but nonetheless we do actually have to move on that front so i would like to see personal income tax uh, cuts but i think there is some urgency around ca- uh, corporate income tax cuts
1: well the other the other great question then is uh, i mean other countries aren't that reliant on corporate uh, tax because they have uh, very high um, spending tax
3: Oh, yes, yes, yes. And, uh, well, yeah. like, like the GST. <laughs> yes. So
1: that raises another question. I mean, should we also be looking at the GST as part of that package? But
3: I think it's it's become very clear over the last couple of years that the GST is the third rail in, 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 in the Australian tax debate. Um, and uh, if, if you have a look from purely efficiency grounds, the, the deadweight losses associated with, with various taxes, ramping up the GST and cutting personal income tax, either at the corporate level or the personal level, would be a very good idea. I think think Joe Hockey was promoting this idea a couple of years ago. And of course, the, the first problem that you run into there is that the GST is very regressive. And so this would actually um, adversely impact upon uh, low income earners over high income earners. I, I think the politics of, of, of that kind of deal would be a hard sell. That's not to say that we shouldn't think about it or, or, or even or even attempt it. Um, I think we should always think about all options and keep everything on on, on the table. But I, I suspect we will find that our federal politicians are a bit traumatised by previous discussions around changing the GST.
1: So, GST, GST will be off the table.
3: I, I would imagine so. Every time somebody's tried to put it on the table, they have been held down, um, and, and and I think the, the the scars are both deep and fresh um, around GST. So I, I suspect they're not going to be doing in any changes to the GST.
1: Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So how do you read that, Leon? Well, I think they're very interesting comments, particularly in the light of uh, what's going on now with tax
0: if indeed we do get tax cuts.
1: Well, yes, that's going to be very interesting to watch. Of course, it's all uh, all in the lead up to the election.
0: And Leon, now the news.
1: Well, Gary, first, Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen has announced she is stepping down from the central bank's board of governors once her successor is sworn into office. Yellen has opted not to remain on the Fed in a diminished role after President Donald Trump decided not to reappoint her as the Fed's first female leader and he has uh, appointed Jerome Powell. To succeed her. Her term ends in February although Powell's chairmanship is still subject to Senate confirmation. Yellen had served three decades as part of the Federal Reserve system, as a member of the Board of Governors, as President of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, and as Vice Chair and Chair of the Board. Technically, Yellen could stay on because the term as Governor does not end until January the 31st, 2024. And of course, her departure means the Fed will have a fourth vacancy to fill.
0: And Powell looks like a shoe and He's respected. He's closely associated with Jan Yellen, so it looks like more improvement of the US economy.
1: Well, yes, and it looks like uh, it's the appointment you're making when you're appointing Yellen when you're not appointing Yellen. (laughs) True. Now, the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, as we've said before, has foreshadowed the prospect of tax cuts in the next federal budget in May next year. These would come ahead the federal election due either towards the end of next year or in early 2019. In a speech to the Business Council of Australia, the Prime Minister said the government was already working on tax cuts for lower middle income earners in addition to the remainder of the company tax Tax cuts that was still being pursued. That this, he said, would not jeopardize the planned return to budget surplus in 2020 21. Tax cuts, he said, would add to reforms to childcare, energy, private health insurance, and housing aimed at easing the cost of living pressures. He said Bracket Creek was, in his words, a constant challenge that needs to be addressed. At the same time, he said the government would still pursue tax cuts for all business. Now, Parliament has passed tax release only for firms with annual turnovers of up to 50 million, and the focus on corporate tax cuts comes at a time when the U.S. has brought in legislation to to cut its federal rate from 35 to 20% and the UK has already cut its rate to 19%. France and Belgium are also looking to cut company taxes. And Mr Turnbull's speech clearly sets up a clash with the ALP in the lead up to the next election. Labor says if it's elected to government it will abolish the remaining of the company tax cuts and restore the deficit levy taking the top tax rate to almost 50%. 50%? That's right. Don't know what that does to us. Well, that's makes only sense. that's only at the top end. Right at the top end.
0: But it still must impact investment and, you know, things like that.
1: Well, let's watch that space. There's some time to go before the election. Now, the fallout over the government's numbers in Parliament and the same-sex marriage debate causing friction in the coalition has upped the chances of a banking Royal Commission. Maverick Queensland MP George Christensen has written to the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull telling him he will vote with the opposition for a Royal Commission into banks or Commission of Inquiry into the financial sector and to reverse cuts to penalty rates. Mr Christensen vote in the the last sitting fortnight when Parliament resumes on November the 27th is now critical with the government losing its majority with the resignations of Nationals leader Barnaby Joyce and Bennelong MP John Alexander. Mr Christensen crossed the floor in July over penalty rates and the government won that by just one vote. Even if Mr Joyce is re-elected on December the 2nd as expected he might not be able to rejoin Parliament until the result is officially declared days afterwards. And this coincides with Nationals member Barry O'Sullivan declaring last week that he's drafting a private members bill to establish a Commission of inquiry in the financial services sector. Senator O'Sullivan said the introduction of a same-sex marriage bill had alienated some nationals and had opened the door for backbenchers to initiate legislation to tackle issues such as a commission of inquiry into the banks. He said it had been caucusing fellow nationals and as many as five were willing to cross the floor and support him. And the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull however has flatly ruled out any prospect of a banking inquiry or royal commission and that was despite reports that the cabinet had discussed the issue as national party senators and MPs were threatened to cross the floor.
0: You know there's one right spot. Tony Abbott's gone quiet since he got soundly hammered in his own electorate over his note campaign on the same-sex marriage business. That's right, it that was 75%. It was, yeah. That's it was right. one of the highest in the country.
1: That's right. Now, the Prudential Regulator has warned banks to stop approving extreme high loan income mortgages. The alternative is that the Regulator will step in and stop it for them. Wayne Birds, who runs uh, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, told the Australian Securitisation Forum in Sydney that household indebtedness is high, and the trajectory is clearly for it to rise further. He said lenders need to be vigilant to ensure their policies and practice are both prudent and responsible. He said there'd been, in his words, a slight moderation in the proportion of borrowers being granted loans that represent more than six times their income. And that sort of lending, he said, was, in his words, well north of what's been permitted in other jurisdictions grappling with high prices and low interest rates, such as the UK and Ireland. He said there was plenty of room for the banks to further tighten their lending practices. He says there's more to do in this area to improve serviceability measures, particularly in relation to the ass- assessment of living expenses and identifying a borrower's existing debts. Lenders, he said, needed to, quote, devote more time to the collection of realistic living expense estimates from borrowers. And from that, they're warning that there's going to be a crackdown.
0: Yeah, buyers is, is saying that the banks are underestimating, willfully or not, or ignoring these uh, living expenses of borrowers. And of course, that means they're very vulnerable to mortgage stress and even to defaulting
1: that's right now other interesting piece of news is that all the construction work being done for lng platforms has lifted construction work in australia by 15.7 percent in the September quarter according to the australian bureau of statistics and that was well above the market expectations for a 2.3 percent decline that said That masks a real problem in the area because most of the construction work was not well distributed across the building sector. The value of engineering work soared by 33%. Residential construction was down 0.8%. Non-residential construction was actually down 0.6%. And parallel
0: with that we're seeing a large number of new apartment blocks coming onto this cooling market and there are serious doubts about finding buyers or renters so that's going to further depress the the construction
1: That's right. Now the Reserve Bank of Australia feels that the return to wages growth is uncertain. The minutes of its last board meeting on Cup Day when it left rates at 1.5% shows the RBA is keeping a sharp eye on wages growth, which is at record low levels. The minutes referred to, in their words, considerable uncertainty around when and how quickly wage pressures might emerge. The minutes noted that while unemployment rates have continued to fall in a number of major economies, wage growth had been slow to increase and core inflation had remained low. And the RBA board felt the recovery in the labour market since late 2016 had been stronger than Expected, but this was not translating through to wages and the unemployment rate was forecast to decline gradually to around 5.25% by the end of 2019 and a speech during the week RBA Governor Philip Lowe blamed low wages on businesses cutting costs
0: and it'd be good to know how much of that increase in employment that they're showing is is part time jobs uh, which might also explain the slow to zero increase in uh, take home pay.
1: That's right. Now to some corporate news Gary and specialty fashion Group, the company behind brands including Katie's, Miller's and Rivers, has been forced to close down more than 300 stores. In an address to shareholders of the company's AGM, Chairwoman Anne McDonald said Specialty Fashion Group would shed 300 loss-making stores, and the move comes amid declining sales and increased competition, and Specialty Fashion Group currently has a portfolio of 1,019 stores across its brands, and the development comes after the company posted a full year 2017 loss nearly quadruple the prior year to 8.39 million after a decision to Exit its city shake stores in the US triggered impairments.
0: Yeah, well. So it's the story of retail, isn't it?
1: It's going really hard. It's going really hard. And uh, Car Sales has announced that it will purchase the remaining 50.1% of NCAR.com. It doesn't already own for $244 million. The acquisition, which gives Car Sales 100% control of South Korea's number one auto classifieds business, comes three years after Car Sales snapped up 49% of NCAR, giving it a foothold in the booming South Korean car market. And Car Sales and SK Holdings have signed a memorandum of understanding for the deal, which is expected to be signed in December and completed in January.
0: Interesting. I wonder if car sales has worked on what they're going to do when automated cars take over.
1: That's right. Well, let's just watch that space. Yeah, they're very
0: technologically advanced, aren't they? They're very smart. Ex-
1: they're extremely technologically advanced, yes. Now, grain core profits surge on the back of a large grain harvest and solid export volumes. The business increases net profit after tax fourfold to $125 million. They quadrupled it, compared with $31 million the year before. Grain managing director and chief executive officer Mark Parnquist put it down to a near record crop in Eastern Australia and another solid performance from Graincore Malt. However, the company has foreshadowed substantially smaller crop in Eastern Australia with production skewed towards Victoria and Southern New South Wales with a below average exportable surplus and Graincore says rising energy costs continue to be a challenge across the business. The other big news story is that Amazon has launched in Australia this week with a soft launch on Thursday, November the 23rd. Opening the full floodgates on Friday, November the 24th for Cyber Monday. So November 27th, following the Thanksgiving uh, weekend season in the US, which is always the start of the shopping season, is Cyber Monday.
0: Yeah, well, here we go again.
1: Well, it was interesting because I was talking to... You remember Scott Kilmartin?
0: Absolutely, yes. Scott
1: Kilmartin is an e-commerce expert and uh, he's a retail consultant. And uh, we had a chat this week and uh, he said to me that uh, they had sent out an email on Tuesday afternoon to 50 sellers telling them that they were going to do a soft launch on Thursday, and it was going to be opening up the full get bit on Friday. The issue, though, too, is that he expects they will be offering not only third-party item but their own items as well their own retail offerings which will be fashion yeah. so you'll you'll have t-shirts you'll have underwear you'll have um uh branded products from in-house in-house branded products and now what will that do for the christmas sales at meyer david jones
0: well look what it's done to Specialty fashion group
1: that's right so amazon is coming along as a christmas grinch <laughs> yes that's right but- and a Big one at that. But on the other hand, it's really good if you're a branded business, a small branded business in Australia, you can sell through Amazon. So it's not all bad. No. And finally, WebJet expects its full year earnings to rise above 14% to 80 million. The online travel booking business told shareholders at AGM that it was on track to build its total transaction for the 2018 financial year to 3 billion, up from 1.97 billion in 2017. And the integration of New Zealand travel booking website Online Republic into the business had seen the company more than double double its full-year profit for 2017.
0: Yeah, they've been in the business a long time, haven't they?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, and they're a good online travel business. Yes, they are. And that's it for this week, Gary, and next week we're talking to Jamie Turin, who's the International Sales Director for Slim Secrets.
0: Yep, and that should be very interesting.
1: In the meantime, you can tune in to us on Twitter, that's uh, Talking Biz, or on Facebook. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you next week.